Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Brad Cullenbach about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Brad Cullenbach, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about a really interesting topic today. I mean, I, I can confess that it's we've never talked about it before. It's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Welcome on board. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's a real, real privilege to be here with you. I, yeah, I mean, uh, I, like I told you just before, you know, we started is, uh, you know, our team started working with your team on the private practice part. And from the first time they met your team, they were buzzing. They had, they said, you have to get the equanimity team on board and, and on the podcast. And so I'm, I'm so honored to have you on board and talking about a topic that I find maybe is not as mainstream as I probably would have thought. And I'm not sure if that's your experience as well, but, um, uh, but you know, before I say anything more, I mean, I would love to hear in your in your words. I mean, what is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? Yes, well, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is an extraordinarily important advance and hopeful advance in psychiatry and clinical psychology. Um, there are two components to it, two pieces here. One is what is ketamine. And then there's the assisted therapy component. So it might be valuable to, to look at them each in turn. So perhaps I'll, I'll take a step back and just talk a little bit about what ketamine is. And then we'll build on the assisted therapy component. So ketamine is an anesthetic medicine that has been widely used since the 70s. It was synthesized as an alternative to the current anesthetics at the time, particularly something called fencyclidine or PCP for short. Ketamine quickly became the preferred option in medical settings because it had such an excellent safety profile. Uh, particularly, it didn't suppress respiratory function. So from the, since the 70s, it's been widely and safely used with, with children and adults in medical settings as an anesthetic it uh, is FDA approved and it appears on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. So, so that's a very brief kind of medical background to, to ketamine as, it's a, as it was originally used. At the turn of the millennium, something very interesting happened. Some really courageous, creative, trailblazing neuropsychiatrists, uh, people like um, doctors John Crystal, uh, Ron Duman and others, they decided to experiment with ketamine in a mental health setting. Uh, it's worth just reflecting on how and why they even considered using ketamine in a mental health space. Traditionally, in the treatment of depression, we've used antidepressants on the medical front. Antidepressants work on a mechanism in the brain called the serotonin system. Now, What's interesting about the serotonin system is that the serotonin nerve cells in the brain only account for about 10% of the brain's nerve cells. They're a tiny proportion of the nerve cells in the brain. And what these creative and curious neuropsychiatrists were wondering was 
And why are we treating depression with a medicine that targets the serotonin system when depression, this pervasive complex syndrome that affects cognitive, behavioral, emotional, physiological systems in the body, that, that impacts executive function, that impacts emotion regulation, how we process reward, that, imp that impacts drive and memory and learning, all these higher brain and higher emotional functions, serotonin merely modulates all these functions. It doesn't, it doesn't have a dramatic impact on them. The neurochemical that has a dramatic impact on all these functions is something called glutamate. Glutamate, you can think of as the brain's gas pedal, its accelerator. It's the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. And GABA. GABA is the brake pedal of the brain. So glutamate drives excitation and GABA drives inhibition. Glutamate and GABA, you can think of as the main information highway of the brain. These are the systems that account for 90% of the nerve cells in the brain. So a far more global set of systems that impact executive function, emotion regulation, how we process reward, how we interpret reality, all the things that depression really has an impact on. So these really smart scientists in, in about the year 2000 said, what if we introduce a medicine that probes the integrity of the glutamate and the GABA systems in these depressed patients? What if we tamper with glutamate and GABA instead and see what happens? And they did. And they needed a medicine that could do that safely and, and effectively. And it just so happens that ketamine, this, this medicine that was originally used as an anesthetic, ketamine blocks something called the NMDA receptor, which is the glutamate receptor. Now, when you block the glutamate receptor, what happens is you prevent the reabsorption, the reuptake of this neurochemical called glutamate. And there's a greater proliferation of glutamate in the brain. Essentially, the brain gets a pulse, a surge of glutamate. And what they saw was absolutely astounding. With a group of extremely depressed people, some of whom presented with suicidal ideation, within hours, their depression was dramatically and rapidly reduced. And, and they say that when their patients first reported back, you know, that, that they said that they called them the next day and said, um, you know, did you have any negative side effects from your ketamine treatment? Are you feeling okay? Do you have a headache? Do you feel nauseous? And, and, and the participants said, um, yeah, a little bit of a headache, um, but something else fascinating has happened. My depression is all better. It's, it's, it's essentially gone. And, and, the, and apparently they were completely dumbfounded. They were completely flawed because they did not expect this. And, and so they repeated these studies and they replicated the results and they replicated them over and over again. And they, and they had the same finding. A small sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine, one-tenth of the dose that might normally be administered to a child or an adult in a hospital setting would rapidly and robustly reduce depressive symptoms in depressed patients. So, so this was the genesis of the use of ketamine in mental health settings. So that's the ketamine component, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we can, we can discuss and we can go into. Just to reflect on the assisted therapy component and where that comes in and where that becomes relevant. 
something else that that's interesting about giving a pulse of ketamine to someone is that the ketamine seems to shut down a network in the brain called the default mode network. The default mode network, you can think of the, the CEO of the brain. It's, it's linked heavily linked to executive function. The default mode network is the network that's most active when the brain is in its normal idle waking state. Essentially, when we are lost in thought, when we're worrying about the future, ruminating about the past. But what's interesting about the default mode network is that clinical psychologists and psychotherapists consider the default mode network to be analogous to something like the ego defense mechanisms. It's the part of the brain that keeps unconscious content at bay so that we're not perpetually flooded by our unconscious minds. We're not perpetually confronted with suppressed memories and suppressed traumas or, or suppressed emotion, that would be that we, we wouldn't be able to function like that. So what a medicine like ketamine does and, and broadly other psychedelic medicines, which you know we can touch on that as well at some point, is it it turns off this default mode network. Essentially it disables the defense mechanisms. Now psychologists have long cautioned that Defense mechanisms are in place for a reason. They were formed in early childhood to protect us from trauma, as well as protect us from a world that couldn't always meet our need for love and authentic self-expression. And the idea in therapy is to slowly and gradually work through the defense mechanisms so that unconscious content can be in a digestible, manageable way integrated into conscious awareness and then you can be, become more integrated, more whole, and you can have more flexibility as to how and where you apply your strategies and your defense mechanisms. However, a pulse of ketamine positively obliterates the defense mechanisms. There is a, a, a profound alteration in consciousness. So these are, this is a mind-altering experience at this sub-anesthetic dose, replete with hallucinations, synesthesia, alterations in the altered perception of time, uh, radical alterations in perceptions of the self and your past and future. So essentially, you're, you're putting the brain into what, what in common parlance would be referred to as a, a trip, and in medical parlance would be called dissociation. Also sometimes thought of as being in a wakeful dream. Now, the healing potential is really great in that space because here you're, you're, you're allowed access to a far greater reservoir of the mind than you ever have access to in awakening consciousness. But the risks are also great because with that, there might be deep emotional release. There might be perspective shift. You might have a capacity to reappraise things in, in a very dramatic way. But you might also be confronted with trauma and suppressed memories that you're not ready to confront. So what a group of really, really brilliant clinicians at institutions like Harvard and Yale and Imperial College London and Johns Hopkins University did was they set out to adumbrate a framework that could hold and ground this dissociative experience. And when participants went through the experience within this framework, they felt safer going into these experiences. It was manageable to confront difficult material that arose. 
adverse reactions were reduced and the benefits lasted much longer. And hence the, the practice, the, the science and the art of psychedelic assisted therapy or ketamine assisted therapy was born. And there are three broad parts to that framework. Uh, there's a, a screening and preparation component. There is the journey, uh, the, the dissociative experience itself, which in psychotherapeutic circles we refer to as a journey. And then there is a process called integration. So what is ketamine-assisted therapy? It is the use of ketamine within this carefully delineated three-part framework to catalyze healing and recovery from various conditions, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, addictions, to name a few. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. And uh, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there, but, you know, and, and so many terminologies that you just kind of just rolled off your tongue, but I'm sure it'll take us some time to unpack. Uh, sure. I can't help but think, though, this is like really bleeding edge stuff, you know, it's like right on the forefront of, of where, you know, and uh, where practitioners could be or where medicine or healthcare could be. Is that a fair comment to say? It's, it's absolutely fair. Um, it is it is quite cutting edge. It is very novel. Um, while, while there's an enormous amount of data, um, including really promising meta-analyses that support both the safety and the efficacy of ketamine-assisted therapy for these various conditions, it's still incredibly novel uh, for clinicians on the ground. Um, there are popular forces at work. There are Netflix documentaries, there are TED Talks, there are all sorts of channels that are uh, bringing, that, that are raising awareness around this treatment. Um, but it's it will still take a little bit of time for, for clinicians on the ground to, to really catch up and uh, begin to accept the amazing possibilities in this space. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, I asked that question, and maybe it's a little bit loaded as well, because, uh, you know, we worked with, we've been working with practitioners, you know, for many, many years. And the one thing I do know about practitioners is they're very conservative, you know, like they're yes. very, you know, like, I would almost say set in their ways in many ways, and obviously for good reason. I mean, that's how you trained yes. and, you know, you're dealing with actual human beings and human yes. lives and all of that yes. stuff. So I get it. But I, I do yes. know, like, that that uh, propensity to change is not easily, uh, I don't find it, you know, if we do find it, it's like very much the anomaly. So Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and by and large, I view that as a good thing. Um, mm. I do think it's a good thing for clinicians to err on the side of conservatism and caution. Um, I find that clinicians, by and large, have a great deal of ethical integrity as well. And so their first consideration is always, is it safe? And mm. as and that's as it should be, but we do have to begin to balance that out with an openness and a curiosity, um, uh, not not a not a flagrant or an irresponsible curiosity and openness, but an openness grounded in in the data in in the research that's that's emergent at the moment. And I think a balance between the two is definitely the way forward at the moment, because let's face it, psychiatry and clinical psychology desperately need more effective alternative methodologies to all of these mental health conditions are on the rise. You know, depression is, is getting worse. Um, that has to do with the way we live today. I mean, we can get into it at some point perhaps, but 
um, there's there's great value in in being open and exploratory as well at this point in our in our trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you again, but you know, I'm not putting on a clinician hat, hat so I, I get the you know the you know, not being able to understand it completely. But I think the, you know, always the advances in technology in terms of medicine, in terms of even life, uh, have always come by something dramatic that everyone, you know, they, they immediately take a step back and say, you know, you can't do yes. that. And then someone says, actually, maybe you can, you know, but if we look at even space exploration, you know, what Elon Musk seems to be saying right now is like, yes, we can go to Mars. And everyone's like, yeah, it's going to take us another 100 to 200 years. And he's like, no, it's possible now, kind of. And and I think you do need those type of pioneers, you know, in terms of society to help us navigate that because not everyone is going to do that. So, yeah, Absolutely. I, yeah, I really like that. Um, I, I want to, Brad, I just want to take a step back as well in terms of the clinical psychologist aspect because, I mean, my view on it is that, uh, you know, clinical psychologists obviously can't get involved from a medicine point of view. So maybe take us through how that normally works and then also maybe at the same time explaining to anyone, I mean, like that doesn't know what a clinical psychologist is, is what does a clinical psychologist normally do? Absolutely. So a clinical psychologist is a a therapist who who works with people who are suffering in one way, one way or another. Now they could be suffering from the basic existential problems of just trying to be a person in the world um, because that's difficult in and of itself. Um, or they might be be struggling with uh, a more clinical condition, uh, what we could broad, broadly call a diagnosable condition, something like um, depression, major depressive disorder a chronic anxiety disorder, um, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so a, a clinical psychologist's scope is generally considered to be um, the widest amongst um, the, the therapists. Um, and the, the, the training has a particular leaning towards dealing with issues that are a little more um, severe within the moderate to severe range. But, but as I say, of course, you know, we, we also work with many people who are simply just working through something um, by virtue of just trying to be a person in, in existence. Um, as for the clinical psychologist's role in, in this process of ketamine-assisted therapy, um, the, cl the clinician is tasked with taking the individual through a process of screening and assessment, um, the preparation process, and there are a few prongs to that which we, which we can get into um, and and crucially the integration process um, so this might be a good time to, to delve a little deeper into what each of those involve if you like um, or we can step back and, and reflect a little bit no I think that's perfect I think let's delve into that a bit more okay. so the screening component is is the first step and it's 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 really crucial um, because yeah, the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is, despite ketamine's extraordinarily safe profile, um, and despite the fact that in a therapeutic setting, you're administering one-tenth of the dose that a child would normally get in a hospital setting, which is an extremely low dose, very well tolerated physiologically by the body. Despite all of that, the fact is that that ketamine simply isn't safe for everyone. Um, so the, the, from, a, from a clinical psych, psychology perspective, the, the conditions that you're looking for and that you're screening out 
is any vulnerability to psychosis, any history of psychosis, delusional disorder, schizophrenia, anything like that. Um, again, if we if we recall what we said in the beginning about ketamine disabling defense mechanisms and creating a kind of healthy fragmentation of the mind so that we can encounter more of the mind, um, people with a history of psychosis don't need more fragmentation. In fact, they, they need the opposite. They need their defenses to be more congealed and tightened up. So uh, we find that um, the literature suggests that if, if you if you put someone with a history of psychosis through a process like this, it, it just exacerbates their, their psychosis. So, so we're screening out any of those sorts of conditions and disorders. That would include someone um, uh, in active mania uh, in, in the manic phase of bipolar disorder as well. Um, there are other conditions uh, that are contraindicated, and this includes severe personality disorders, so something like borderline personality disorder. Here again, we have a, a, a presentation where defense mechanisms are already too loose and too fragmented. Um, and it, it simply would, would aggravate and emotionally dysregulate such people to, to put them through this process. So, so we're screening out those conditions. Um, there are medical conditions that we screen out, but of course, um, as, as clinical psychologists, uh, we, we don't, uh, look for those conditions. We might we might ask about them in a session, but we have a medical doctor with special training in anesthetics on hand who takes our clients through uh, the medical screening. The I, I, I'll, on the medical front, I'll just say that the major issue here is untreated hypertension. Um, so to people with with high blood pressure that is poorly managed, ketamine temporarily raises blood pressure. And, and if hypertension is uncontrolled, um, it's, it's contraindicated. But having said that, it's worth noting that in medical settings, uh, most doctors simply manage the rise in blood pressure with something like an adrenergic receptor blocker, uh, like Indorol, rather than exclude the ketamine. So uh, it, it's not offhand um, uh, a contraindication that will exclude you, but it's something that, that you look for and that you're careful of. Uh, also, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, we don't have good long-term data on the effects of ketamine on the developing fetus. Um, so, so for now, we, we rule that out as well. Um, those are some of the major contraindications. We would also be concerned about someone in a process of active addiction. Um, so if you're in an addictive spiral, uh, we find that this, this kind of treatment can simply just aggravate that process. Um, and we'd also, we'd also want to just look out for people with first-order relatives with, with a history of psychosis or, or bipolar 1 disorder in particular. So those are the, those are the issues we're, we're pretty much on the lookout for. Um, from screening, you move into a process of preparation. It's worth saying that um, the way that we, we view a medicine like ketamine in a therapeutic process is simply as a catalyst. We, we view it as one tool in a much broader, much faster framework and toolbox. We don't lean heavily on the ketamine to do the heavy lifting, to do the work that we want to do. There is, as, as powerful as this medicine is, there is no replacement for the slow, unglamorous, rigorous process of, of therapy. Nothing can replace that. 
And so from the beginning, from the process of preparation, you are priming the person's mind for this ketamine journey. And the first component of preparation involves what we call going into a life story or a psychobiography. Here, we are doing a deep, almost psychoanalytic dive, if you will, into someone's early history. We want to get a sense as to what were their early relationships like? What were the key transitional moments in their life? Key traumas, key relationships, and how have these shaped you? Um, how have these contributed to the defense mechanisms and the strategies that you use today to try and meet your underlying needs as a person. And that process of, of psychobiography leads quite organically into the second component of preparation, which is the setting of very clear intentions for the ketamine infusion, the ketamine journey. The research in the space is, is quite clear on this in that if you set really clear intentions, in other words, goals, what do you want to get out of this? The benefits tend to accrue uh, in a more powerful way and the benefits tend to last longer. And the journey, the whole process is just much more meaningful. Uh, for some reason, the, the medicine seems to tack on to the intentions you set. It tacks on to your mindset going into the experience. And so it's very important to be crystal clear as to why you're there, what's the meaning of this experience for you, what do you want to get out of this? And that could be, I want to resolve something in a conflict. I want to recover a lost part of myself. I want to heal from this depression. I want to eliminate fear in this part of my life. I want to forgive myself for something. I want to cultivate a kinder, more compassionate relationship to myself. Um, I, want to, I want to recover from this addiction. These are all intentions that people can set for the journey. And the process of the life story will give us great insights into how and why the person arrives at the intention that they do. Because ultimately we view all of these intentions, we view them, or, or rather let's say we view someone's depression or their chronic anxiety or their addiction as a symptom of trauma, essentially, a symptom of a set of processes that unfolded in their life. Um, and this is just the body's way of, of expressing it. And this is the body's way of trying to get their underlying needs met. So we've moved from screening and preparation into psychobiography, into the setting of clear intentions. The next step in preparation involves equipping the individual with a series of tools, real-time tools that they can use in the journey that can help them feel grounded and stabilized if they need to. It's very important to approach a, a ketamine experience or, or more broadly speaking, a psychedelic assisted therapy journey with a mindset that is premised on being curious, on being open, on being non-resistant, non-reactive, and non-judgmental. Essentially, a mindfulness-based approach. Um, as the mindfulness practitioners listening will know, it's less our thoughts and the sensations in our body and our emotions that cause us distress. It's our relationship to these things. It's our reaction to these things. And in a, in a ketamine journey, in a sense, the, the one thing that's predictable is that it's very unpredictable. Um, you will encounter, like, like we said, you're experiencing a profound alteration in consciousness. You might encounter visuals. You might, you might 
confront early memories, deep suppressed emotion might arise. And it's very useful to know how to stabilize and ground yourself in those moments so that you don't become overwhelmed. So we equip our clients with breathing exercises. We, we do some basic mindfulness meditation training leading up to the journey. Um, really just cultivating this open, non-reactive, curious mindset. This mindset is quite uh, beautifully encapsulated by one of the lead researchers at Johns Hopkins University, uh, a psychiatrist named Bill Richards. He says, trust, let go and be open. That, that's the mindset. Um, if, you see, if you see a doorway, if you see a stairwell, what would you normally do? Go through it. Go up the stairwell. Explore everything. Um, and indeed, from a behavior from a behaviorist perspective, this is the essence of exposure. If you move towards something that feels strange or disquieting or even scary, uh, that's where the learning is. That's where the insight is. There's a. It's almost as if there's a gem, there's a treasure just behind what what makes you feel uncomfortable. So, as we like to say in this work, we say lean in. Lean into everything, move towards everything, especially the things that make you uncomfortable. Um, indeed, what we need most is often found where we least want to look. So, so that's the third component um, of preparation is essentially mindfulness training, but it's a real-time practical-based mindfulness. And, and that is preparation. It might be good to pause here for a moment before we, we go into the, the next component, if you like. No, I loved it. Hey, I mean, uh, I think you have a really good way of explaining it as well. You know, very systematic, and I think it's it's incredible. Um, you know, and uh, you know, normally I ask a lot more like questions in between, but I think your thought process is so clear. You know, in terms of how you explain it, I, I, I loved it. Um, and in in my mind, Brad, I mean, uh, so you know, with the psychodynamic, you know, Freud suggested you know, people be in therapy every single day. But as you said really nicely, you know, it's to drop the defense mechanism so you can get to really helping. And then you got the other extreme, you know, of like, you know, people just, you know, taking drugs. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's, you know, like that's with the same kind of, you know, aspect, you know, just getting the mind a lot more open. And But I think what this, in my mind, kind of starts, uh, you know, opening up, you know, possibilities on. It's almost like that middle ground where, you know, the issue I have with the being in therapy every single day, firstly, it's not accessible from a cost point of view, and it's not easy to just be open like that. I mean, how do you, you know, sustain that in, you know, if you have to work and all of that stuff? Um, but do you see it like that as well? I mean, is that why you're so passionate about it? Absolutely. Um, I think that's really valuable, Oliver. You know, one of the, the, the helpful analogies that, that we summon to think about this process is we often like we, we like to think of the brain and the mind as a block of clay. And what traditional therapies attempt to do is to chip away at that dry clay over time to re-sculpt the psyche into, into a more amenable, more adaptive form, in, into a form that, that will more um, uh, prudently meet your needs as a human being. And that's a fine approach, but like, like weather hitting a rock, it takes a lot of time. Over time, you will change the shape of, of the structure, but it, but it takes a great deal of time. What ketamine-assisted therapy is like doing, it's like heating up the clay of the mind. So the mind becomes really soft and really malleable. And now you can remold it and re-sculpt it in an extremely short space of time. Um, 
essentially what you're doing is you're creating an enormous amount of neuroplasticity. You are giving the brain an opportunity to different parts of the brain to activate, communicate, and connect in ways that it normally wouldn't. And the idea is when while the mind is, is malleable, you come in with psychotherapy, whether it's cognitive behavior therapy, psychoanalytic therapy, narrative-based therapy, existential-based therapy, whatever you're doing, and then you have an opportunity to re-sculpt it in the right way. So I, I also want to add that that you know, neuroplasticity alone is not necessarily a good thing. Um, after all, people in the throes of a psychotic episode have an abundance of neuroplasticity. What we want is goal-directed plasticity. We, and, and this is where the, the very goal-directed process of working through a life story, setting clear intentions, having practical tools to ground yourself, and then crucially doing the integration, which we'll come to in a moment, really comes into play. So I very much agree with, with what you said. Okay, brilliant. I mean, uh, I think, yeah, I'm looking forward to the integration one, because maybe, you know, the question I had in mind, but actually before that, uh, well, before I forget it, so I mean, the question I had in mind is, you know, from a, from a psychologist point of view, or a clinical psychologist point of view, do you help them during that, that part when they actually have the ketamine or is it the the part before that and the part after that i think that's a question i have but the other one i have and i just want to go into that now is because not many people know about this i, I came across it recently and i thought it's pretty interesting but i would love to hear it from your words but why is that life story so important the the psycho bio, biograph that you mentioned absolutely the the importance of of the of the life story is that it will, it will give us an enormous amount of insight into the intentions that the person is setting for this journey. And what we often find is that you know, people might come, come into a first session and, and have a clear sense as to what they want to achieve through this process of ketamine-assisted therapy. But in, inevitably, it often changes once they've been through the process of life story and they realize, actually, what I need to be focusing on is this instead of this. Um, so, it, fundamentally, according to our model, we view depression, addiction, anxiety as symptoms, again, as, as symptoms of trauma. And what the life story shows us, and, and I, we're, we're fond of drawing on the work of an, an amazing uh, clinician uh, named Gabo Mate in this particular area, where he says that trauma is not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you as a result of an external event. And what happens in, inside us when we're traumatized is there's a fragmentation of self. We essentially lose aspects of self. And we view all psychotherapy, whether it's traditional therapy, or whether it's a ketamine-assisted therapy journey, the purpose is ultimately to recover the fullness of who you are so that you become more integrated and more whole. And we find that the way that we approach the psychobiography with our, with our particular framework is that it gives us a very clear sense as to which aspect of self a person needs to begin to recover. And then that feeds into setting intentions that are far more meaningful and, and hence into a more favorable outcome with, with the journey itself. Mm. But Brad, does that process have to be facilitated? I mean, can anyone do this or, or is it one of those dangerous things as well? You know, you shouldn't really go down there because it can, you know, obviously open up the mind and, you know, that's the reason that they say, you know, like I think the word 
you know, that comes to mind for, for most therapists is contained, you know, can you contain that? Um, because that's why you go to a psychologist, but can someone open up their life, like journal or do that life story? And are there benefits to doing that? Absolutely. I think a process of journaling around your life story and, and using um, carefully worded questions to prompt that process is, is a perfectly safe process to undergo. Um, and, and I would rec and it's valuable and I, I would recommend people do that. It's, it's, it's likely though that insights or material might arise that you then need to go and have contained and integrated and, and made sense of with the help of someone else. So the life story process, it's certainly possible to, to do it on your own, um, but the, the actual medicine journey itself, um, it, would, it would not be safe to, to simply do that on your own, only under very carefully delineated boundaries and conditions would, would that be recommended. But by and large, um, you want to do this in a controlled setting, in a clinical setting, with very careful attention to, to the physical environment, to, to who you're with, and uh, crucially, having people with the right expertise with you uh, while, you're, while you're going through the process. Okay, That's, that actually makes sense. Um, yeah, I love that. I think so for anyone listening, I think just research that a bit more. Um, I think we always I mean, like the recommendation is we need to journal. But the first time I heard that I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why would you do that? And I think it's actually quite profound, you know, when you when you start on that path and just like reflecting back, it's like looking at photographs, you know, like always gives you a sense of like, like experience, you know, when you do Absolutely. that. And there's always those Absolutely. inflection points. Um, yes. Yes, indeed. When, when you're journaling, you are bypassing the typical norms of writing in the same way that when you're in a therapy session, you bypass the typical norms of conversation and speech. Um, the therapist's invitation will often be, say whatever comes to mind. We don't do that when we're sitting down for coffee with someone. There are, there are strictures, there's a logical flow. Um, when you bypass those norms, whether it's writing or, or in speech, the idea is that you are allowed access to less conscious parts of the mind, and that's where insights and emotions and memories can, can start to emerge, and that can be useful. Mm. Yeah. You know what's amazing for me is uh, uh, we've got two children, and uh, when, I, when I look at some of their photographs, I can almost like picture myself back there. You know, it seems like just yesterday. You know, and I'm sure it's every parent or every person, you know, when they look at those things, it's incredible, you know, to see Absolutely. how life works, eh? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So coming back to that question around, and, and I don't know if you're going to cover that as part of the integration, but does the psychologist help during that, that uh, time that the person is actually having the ketamine or that yeah. treatment? Yeah. So given the nature, given the, the, the medical nature of the ketamine journey, it's not absolutely necessary for the therapist to be present during the ketamine journey. Um, how it works is that the individual would go into uh, a private cubicle or an infusion pod. They'd be seated in a comfortable recliner. Um, the, the medical doctor would administer an IV, a drip, um, that have eye shades placed over their eyes and noise cancelling headphones placed on their ears. And, um, and then the doctor would administer the ketamine. So it's an incredibly internal journey. It's not, an, it's not the same as a therapy session where you're interacting with your therapist. 
it's not to say that if people want to, you know, lift the eye shades and say something, you know, the, the doctor and the nursing staff will always be incredibly welcoming and warm and containing and non-judgmental in that space. But we encourage an internal journey because that's where the real the real work happens. That's where the real magic is. Um, so, there, so, so, by, so, so it, it's mostly um, the, the psychologist is mostly present during preparation and the integration phase. There is some interesting research around um, using ketamine for alcohol use disorder um, that that suggests that if you if the therapist is present and triggers and or prompts traumatic memories linked to alcohol use during the ketamine journey, that that can be incredibly beneficial. There seem to be good outcomes with that kind of protocol, um, but that's pilot data, that's preliminary. We haven't experimented with that yet. Okay, that sounds really cool. I mean, I, I think you painted the picture for us as well in terms of how long that is uh, or how that happens. And then that's supposed to question that's kind of um, I'm thinking about as well is how long does that process take? So the infusion lasts about 50 minutes. Um, 50 minutes while you're deep in that, what we call journey space or that dissociative space, that wakeful dream. Um, and then requires about 15 minutes of recovery time. It feels a little bit like waking up from an anesthetic. So you feel a little bit drowsy, a little bit unsteady in your feet. Um, so at that point, you, you go sit in the waiting, the, the recovery area, and you get served a beautiful cup of ginger tea. And you just relax and take your time until a loved one is ready to come and get you and, and drive you in. So there's no operating heavy machinery. Um, there's no swimming. Um, you, you go home into a clean, quiet, beautiful space where you can just recover and rest. Because remember, um, by you know, according to our, our the theories in this space, you in 50 minutes, you might have undergone six months of therapy in, in a very short space of time. Um, like we said, you're heating up that play of the mind. There's a lot of remolding. You're creating enormous neuroplasticity. You're doing a lot of emotional heavy lifting. Um, you might have grieved um, years and years and years of grief that, that you haven't been able to access in, in, in 15 minutes. So it's important to be really gentle and, and to nurture the body and the mind in the aftermath. Um, meditating, uh, reading, light reading, being in nature, being with loved ones. Those are, those are healthy activities to engage in. And only if you got the preparation and the setting of the clear intentions done, right? I mean, then, exactly. then it would be exactly as you painted now, that perfect exactly. picture of six months of therapy in, in an hour, which is, I mean, it sounds Absolutely. incredible, actually. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most therapists, they, they agree that, you know, the, at least a double session a week definitely opens up the mind to be, like you said, you know, the, you know, heating up the clay. I like that analogy. Indeed. Indeed. And, and for that reason, it's really important to, um, to make sure that you start integration therapy within, within sometimes it's, it's good within 24 hours, but no longer than, I'd say, three days. You really want to take advantage of that neuroplasticity, that beautiful neurological window of opportunity that the ketamine has opened up, um, the probability that you know, if you take on a new habit or a new routine, the probability that it will stick is very high because you're so neuroplastic. So it's, it's important to capitalize on that window of opportunity. 
Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. Eh? I mean, uh, especially with our children. I mean, they've definitely gone under anesthetic. And I remember with our daughter, there was a time when dentists used, you know, like at their at their surgeries or at their practices, and they were anesthetists that would, you know, use that. And I think it was ketamine, you know, like because it was for a short time. It wasn't like proper GA, you know, for a longer time. Um, yes. Is that how it was used as well? When you mentioned earlier about the applications. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. That's right. Okay. And obviously, you're talking from a South African context, and, and I'm assuming, you know, like, is this a common practice across the world? I know you said FDA approved as well. So is it like in the US, in the UK where I'm right now, you know, like, is it all, is it all, um, I mean, is it similar uh, in yes. terms of the so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important question. So um, there are, it's worth just mentioning that there are three routes of administration when it comes to, to using ketamine for, for the purpose of healing and recovery in a, in a clinical setting. The one is um, the most common, which is the one we use, which is intravenous administration via a drip. Um, that uses a particular form of ketamine, a, a mix of ketamine, um, without getting too technical, R and S ketamine. Um, then there is an intranasal method of induction, something called S-ketamine. Um, and finally, there's an intramuscular injection. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to all of these methods of induction. The reason we prefer intravenous induction is because it allows us, allows the doctor rather, to carefully control onset and offset of action to really manage any side effects that might occur. Um, it, it just, it, intravenous induction is a little bit like wading into a body of water slowly rather than kind of jumping and diving in, which is what you get if you, if you have uh, the injection. Um, you're getting the full dose in one go. Um, once you're on the ride, you can't get off the ride. You've got to come ride it out. Um, with, with intravenous, it's very slow and gentle, and you, know, you can stop the process at any point if you need to. Intranasal um, is interesting as well uh, in that it is the only form of ketamine that currently is FDA approved for the treatment of depression. So in all other settings, ketamine is used in a way that what we would say it's used off-label. So it's, it's used for a purpose other than its original intention. That doesn't mean um, it's wrong or it doesn't work. There are, there are many, many medications that we use today off-label that work incredibly effectively for, for a purpose that was different to the original purpose. Um, we, we imagine that if the FDA, at least in America, will approve intravenous and intramuscular ketamine um, for the treatment of depression in, um, in hopefully a year or two. So I don't think we're looking at years and years in that regard. Um, but, but yes, ketamine is, is, is widely used. It's becoming more and more popular, uh, particularly in the United States and in, in Europe. On that point, I, I will say though that unfortunately this space is, is largely unregulated and does tend to attract um, evangelists who can view ketamine as a panacea or a silver bullet, um, who, would, who often sacrifice safety and therapeutic rigor for some kind of expediency. Um, so, so that is, 
uh, a challenge in the space. And and connectedly, there are there seem to be a lot of fly by night ketamine operations popping up, kind of all over the place. That that unfortunately sometimes push people through the system like cattle through a cattle shoot. Um, and our our approach is to is to really really push back against that and really differentiate ourselves from that. Um, we know from the data from our experiences as clinical psychologists that in the absence of really careful screening and thorough preparation, very careful attention given to the physical setting um, and thorough and ongoing integration that this process is at best ineffectual and at worst can be risky. So um, so we really, really invest very heavily in the therapeutic framework. And as I say, we simply view the ketamine as, as a catalyst. Mm, I like that. And I think that came out very clearly in this in this discussion so far. I mean, it's not the, I mean, it's helping with the therapy, but it's not the therapy. You know, I think that's the, that's the key difference. Um, that's it. As we like to say, the magic isn't in the medicine. <laughs> mm, yeah. I think every health, I mean, whether it's a GP or anyone, I mean, I know they recommend the medication, but I mean, I think the, the biggest asset you have is your own body. And if you can get your body stronger, you know, you don't need the medicine. You know, I think everyone is on that. You know, so. Absolutely. And I appreciate you mentioning the body, Oliver, because part of our framework and, and what we found in terms of really sustaining benefits and outcomes is we also give a lot of attention to, to sleep, to nutrition, to, to movement and exercise, to, to practices like meditation, um, practices like yoga, um, mindfulness-based practices like breathwork, yoga, cold exposure, deliberate cold exposure. All of these modalities, there's evidence that suggests that these also shut down what we've been calling this default mode network. Um, and if you engage in these practices as part of your integration following academy journey, the benefits are, are really deeply sustained. Um, there's a, a neuroscientist uh, who we're fond of quoting in, in this regard. His name is Sam Harris. Um, he says that uh, you know, meditation and, and psychedelics or things like ketamine may lead you to the same place. The only difference is that meditation is like setting a sail, whereas ketamine is like strapping yourself to a rocket. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it must be very interesting, you know, for people, you know, going through it. Um, and I mean, I haven't forgotten it. I still want to go into that one. But but you mentioned psychedelics as well. I mean, uh, can you take us through, firstly, I mean, what, what does it mean? I mean, I have an idea in my mind, but in your words, and, and how does it relate to ketamine, I suppose? Absolutely. So the, the word psychedelic was, was coined by a Canadian psychiatrist named Humphrey Osmond in the 50s. And it literally means mind manifesting. So psychedelics are compounds um, that they can be organic or synthetic that catalyze profound alterations in consciousness, profound changes in our perception of reality. Um, as we said earlier, with the ketamine could involve dissociation, could involve hallucination, synesthesia, um, altered perception of space and time, um, and. And again, you know, when, when used with intention, when used in the right setting, with the right preparation, and crucially with the right integration, the follow-up therapy can 
dramatically speed up and facilitate a process of healing and recovery. Um, so broadly speaking, um, there are organic compounds like psilocybin mushrooms, um, a substance called iboga. Um, these are sometimes considered the classic psychedelics, uh, something called ayahuasca. Um, of course, these are, these are not legal for, for, for use. Um, only in very particular geographies around the world are these legal, with the exception of iboga, which is in fact legal in South Africa. Um, and then there are synthetic compounds like, like LSD um, and ketamine. Um, the main differences between the classic psychedelics and something like ketamine uh, is that, you know, structurally at the molecular level, these, these compounds are not at all the same. They, they have very different molecular structures. They also have different mechanisms of action. So the, the, the classical psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, they work again, they work on the serotonin system, uh, whereas ketamine works on the glutamate and the GABA system. One of the key differences between the classic compounds and something like ketamine is that because ketamine works on the glutamate system, it essentially distorts reality more than alters reality. So in a ketamine journey, it's, it's more common that you have distortion of sensory experience rather than hallucination proper. Not to say that it can't happen, it's, it's just less common. Uh, whereas the, the compounds that work on the serotonin system seem to completely alter, alter reality. So it would be the difference between, um, you know, my arm feels like it's, you know, seven feet long compared to there's a, there's a glowing orb floating in the middle of the room that wasn't there. So, so those can be the, some of the differences. Uh, for this reason, ketamine is sometimes called an honorary or a pseudo-psychedelic. Um, but at the dosages that we use it, uh, and in the way that we use it within our therapeutic framework, the, the phenomenology, the subjective experience can be very similar to, to what you experience when you're in a mushroom journey or in an LSD trip or, or something like that. Um, so so those, are, those are some of the main differences. Of course, the, the other big difference is just the practicality of ketamine. You're talking about a 50-minute journey that can be easily controlled easily administered, it can be switched off if you need to. Um, whereas with some of these other compounds, we're talking about a six, eight, 12, 16, 20 hour journey, which is a, an enormous ordeal. Mm, yeah, there's almost like a, a certain uh, like naughtiness about the topic. Hey, I mean, I, I remember growing up, it's like a um, I, and we grew up in a very conservative background, but uh, the, you know, and I started working with this, uh, you know, with an IT company and I mean, they would talk about mushrooms and LSD and I mean, like in my mind, I couldn't even fathom what they were saying, you know, in terms of how they, you know, would talk about it. But like you Absolutely. said, I mean, like, you know, and, and the amazing thing is like lots of these things were around a lot before, but it's almost like an abuse of what it could be. And yes. I think, you know, facilitated, like you mentioned, you know, has enormous yes. benefits, but there's a recklessness yes. to it. Uh -huh. No, absolutely. And, you know, on, on that point, I, I think it's, it's it, there's a huge distinction between the intentional use of these compounds in a clinical setting, in a legal setting, um, 
in a therapeutic framework and the recreational use of these compounds. Mm. Um, mm. These compounds are not for everyone. Um, there are there are risks that come with using them, um, even though physiologically these are some of the safest substances on earth. And if, if listeners are interested, there, there's a fascinating study, a 2019 study in the Journal of Psychopharmacology by um, Professor David Nutt and David Castle, who's our pioneering neuropsychiatrists uh, in um, Imperial College London, um, who ranked 22 substances from most harmful to least harmful based on a, on a wide variety of factors, harm to the user and harm to others. And um, fascinatingly, and this is a bit of a trigger warning, the, the top five most dangerous substances were number one, alcohol, crystal meth, um, uh, crack cocaine and, and tobacco, nicotine, two of which are legal, which is, <laughs> says something interesting about uh, mm. our, our, um, our relationship to substances. But right at the bottom, right at the bottom are um, ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, and, and MDMA, um, even below cannabis. So comparatively, these are some of, these are some of the safest safe substances on earth. But that's still not a re- they're still substances and they still have risks and it's still not a reason to to kind of fly off into the jungle and you know take a, a big dose of mushrooms without any intention, um, without any awareness as to you know, the impact and um, what you might find in your mind. Uh, this is again back to the the three part framework. Mm. Psychologists and especially psychoanalysts have have taught us for years that almost no one is ready to fully confront their own mind. So, mm. so uh, there are cautionary tales that are worth paying attention to. Yeah, yeah I love that. Um, so on that list, is sugar on that list? I mean, obviously, we've had lots of people talking about diabetes, you know, and there's this whole thing around how bad sugar is, even compared yes. to alcohol. Um, yes. So, so sugar, um, so I, I believe that the study was primarily looking at mind-altering substances. Um, sh- I mean, I think there's a good argument to be made that, that sugar, should, it sh- sugar should at least be on some list in some study, probably mm-hmm. very much towards the top. <laughs> without, <laughs> yeah. without demonizing sugar, I mean, I think it's important also to take pleasure in life and, and enjoy life as well. Yeah, no, no, agreed. Um, that was obviously tongue in cheek, but um, you know, you mentioned the alcohol and the tobacco, which I, I find absolutely interesting as well. You know, if you if you think about, um, you know, alcohol, we haven't had many people, uh, many practitioners actually talking about that. We've had an OT talking about it, substance abuse, um, but you know that whole effect and the destructive nature of it as well. But um, I love that. Um, I think you mentioned so many resources throughout the throughout the episode, uh, Brad. But is there any particular resources that you would point someone to? So they listened to this and they said, "Wow, this is amazing!" As it would have been, as it was for me the first time I you know heard about it, and I said, "Okay, I really want to pursue." Oh, I really want to learn more. I mean, obviously, we'll have your details and your team's details, you know, on the show notes, but. Um, are there any other resources that you would point them to? I think most of them were very academic, you know, that you obviously, you know, reference for, for good reason. And I like, and I love that. Uh, but is there anything else that you would recommend? Yes, I think a great starting point um, would be um, Michael Pollan's 
magisterial bestseller, his big blockbuster bestseller called How to Change Your Mind, um, written for a lay audience, uh, walks people through his series of encounters, his journeys with various um, psychedelic compounds. And it, it just gives a really lucid and compelling and comprehensive account of what these experiences can be like. So that, so that would be a great starting point. Um, from there, if you're a little more uh, academically inclined and you want to dig into some of the classical literature around um, just the potentiality of, of human consciousness and, and, and what the experience of um, having a mind-altering substance is like, you could look at um, Aldous Huxley's seminal text, The Doors of Perception. So that's a real classical text. It's a short text, uh, really accessible and really fascinating. Um, if you want to go a little bit deeper into the classical direction, you could look at William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, many of, many of the, the ways in which he classifies different states of consciousness map on to the psychedelic experience very, very um, well. And then if you're, if you're particularly interested in ketamine, Phil Wolfson, psychiatrist, uh, has um, a great book called The Ketamine Papers, which is excellent. Um, then, of course, there's, there's the vast database of peer-reviewed peer literature in the space. Um, I'd encourage interested listeners to click on the tab labeled science on our, on our website. Um, that will give you access to a host of peer-reviewed peer literature and meta-analyses Ketamine-assisted therapy as it's applied to depression, alcohol use disorder, chronic anxiety disorders, uh, and, and some interesting data coming out on the use of ketamine for OCD and eating disorders as well. Um, so that might, yeah, that might be a good starting point. I almost get the feeling that we are at the beginning of a like a new era or a new way of working. You know, when you mention all of those, because those are, I mean, those are therapists that, that specialize, you know, eating disorders, OCDs, uh, OCD, um, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, you know, like, and I mean, as you said it quite nicely at the beginning of the show, it's like, it's, uh, you know, these are massive problems in society. Um, and it's almost like they, you know, there's, and, and I suppose that's where CBT kind of came from. It's like, no one can be you know, in therapy for, and I think the other one is BWRT as well. You know, no one can be in therapy for a long time. So you have these modalities that have come up, you know, to help us just get over stuff a lot more quicker, almost the coping skills. So, yeah, it's really looking forward to seeing how it evolves as well. Likewise, likewise. And as you say, this, this ketamine-assisted therapy is a really um, hopeful, powerful, accessible option for people who feel like they've hit a wall um, they're you know they're kind of treading water they're, they're, they've been in therapy for a long time they don't feel like they're making the shifts that they could be making um, they're, they've done maybe two or three courses of, of antidepressants or other forms of medication and are not seeing much daylight there um, this really is an extraordinarily important advance in the field um, so I suppose I, I'd want to leave people with a message of hope that, that there really is hope um, and, and, they, and they don't need to settle for, for just being in pain and, and for suffering. So, Yeah, I think you said that really well. And, and I think that is the perspective. 
I think if you have a loved one, and I think that's the reason, you know, like we do this as well, is that if you have a loved one and you didn't know what to ask, I think that's my biggest issue. It's like people go onto Google or Bing or wherever you're going and they're trying to find help. How do you, how do you, you know, it's like you don't know what you don't know. And unless you stumble upon, you know, just say Brad Cullenbuck, you know, you, you're not going to know that, you know, like I kind of stumbled upon it you know, by accident as well. And it was like, you know, okay, that's interesting. I would have never guessed that. Um, but it's like, if you didn't know that, how would you know it? And I think the other thing is like, it's not mainstream. When I say mainstream, I mean, it's not every practitioner talking about it. So you wouldn't even know it from that circle, even if you went into the system. Um, so yeah, very cool stuff. And uh, yeah, I like how you said that. Um, we do have to start wrapping up, but I have to ask you these few uh go, you know like uh, before we close up but for any practitioner brad that wanted to you know wanted to almost start using this as a you know like as a way in therapy is is there any recommendation that you would give them other than the resources that you that you provided already so the, this this is the the great lacuna in in the space at the moment uh, there simply aren't formal accredited training programs that offer that, that teach clinicians this form of, of, of therapy. Um, my, my colleague and I at, at Equanimity, Anthony Townsend, we, we learned this modality just through a deep immersion, number one, in the literature, um, and number two, through, through really just taking people through this process under the guidance and auspices of experienced uh, doctors and um, anipotists who, who have a great deal of um, metal in this in this area so this is the gap um, my colleague and i are trying to close that gap and and we're in the process of uh, creating a formal training program based on our, our modality based on our, our framework um, to hopefully make this um, accessible to more clinicians and and ultimately to to reach a wider audience and really help just help as many people as we possibly can yeah. And you know where I see it going, Brad, it's like, you know, and this is very, I mean, this is very common, if not, it's recommended within the healthcare space. But, you know, when you hit a certain a level or you hit a certain ceiling with a client, you refer out. So, for instance, you know, if it's speech therapy, you know, like you got to a certain level with a child and actually you can't make any more progress. You refer out to maybe another speech therapist or maybe a different way of working. You know, GPs do this all the time, you know, to dietitians, you know, if you need help with your how you know weight or and stuff to get it's maybe this is the gap is that you know when you hit a certain ceiling with a client you know this is the, the almost like a referral point would you would you say that that's kind of fair maybe as a positioning aspect i i would say that's that's very accurate um and and i appreciate you mentioning that because it's very important that clinicians and therapists listening to this talk understand that our process um, would not interfere with, with their therapy journey that they're on with their patient. Um, as we said, this, mo this modality is a catalyst. It, 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 it's a reset. We're, we're simply just opening up a window of opportunity so that the therapy can work, whatever therapy that they're doing with their client. So um, we, our modality is, is, works very um, in a very complementary way with all forms of therapy. We embrace all forms of therapy. Um, we're not against antidepressants. In fact, one of the benefits of ketamine is that you can safely stay on your antidepressants as you're going through the treatment, which, which can't be said for some of the other compounds that we mentioned today. 
Um, so, so yes, um, the purpose is not to disrupt a process that they're going through with their client, but to but to just to help catalyze it essentially. Okay, great. And um, I think the other question, which you know, would be more or less on the outline that I would have liked, would be from an ethical consideration point of view. Is there anything that springs to mind? I mean, obviously, you're dealing with, you know, um, some, as you said, cutting edge stuff. But is there anything from an ethics point of view that kind of springs to mind that you would consider? Absolutely. So, so there's a strong medical component to. There's a major medical component to this work. So you have to have all the medical infrastructure in place. You have to have the right medical team. You have to have the right equipment, um, and that all ties to safety. You know, like we said earlier, there are a lot of kind of fly-by-night ketamine operations just springing up. Um, so, so safety is, as always, safety first. Um, I think it's worth noting that um, all the typical ethical considerations that apply to traditional therapy apply to this space, um, but with, with even more intensity. And the reason is because when one is in the process of a psychedelic journey or a ketamine-assisted therapy journey, you are incredibly vulnerable in some senses. You know, when you're in that cubicle, you're, you're in part, you're detached from reality. Uh, your defenses are disabled. Um, you don't have a lot of control over your body. Uh, it takes a really holding, compassionate, um, and expert environment to, to contain that experience. And, and so all the, the common considerations of, of respect, confidentiality, beneficence, non-beneficence, these, these all apply, but, but with, greater, um, with greater import, I would say. Uh, so that's something to consider. Um, I think issues, an, an interesting issue in this space is also the issue of physical touch, um, because this is not something that we do in traditional therapy, typically, I mean, there might be some modalities where it's, it's appropriate in some situations to give a client a hug, but they're, they're far and few between these, these sorts of situations. Um, in the journey, when, when someone's in that journey space, you might, you might need to touch them. You might need to hold their hand. They might reach out. They might need you to grab their hand while they breathe through something. They might need help getting up, going to the bathroom. Um, these instances need to be negotiated with the client before the experience. Um, this becomes especially pertinent with people who've, who've suffered violations of touch in the form of physical or sexual abuse, um, especially in a psychedelic space. You, the mind, it, it, the defenses are down. You might, you might regress to an earlier part of your, your childhood, of your life, and so you're extremely vulnerable. So, so these areas have to be navigated with great care um, an astute ketamine-assisted therapist is warm and compassionate, but, but also has boundaries of steel. And where the boundaries apply in traditional therapy, they apply even more in, in this space. So, so that, becomes, um, that becomes really pertinent as well. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I love that. I, I think, you know, what's, what's nice about it? It's like your typical research kind of aspects, you know, where you, you, know, you don't, discard the whole body of of knowledge before that you're almost like making changes to it and i think anyone listening to this if you've in, ever been for an anesthetic you know like to an anesthetist or one of those procedures you know where an, an anesthetist is you know you can relate to it you know like being under ga and and stuff like that or general anesthetic so i think it's kind of relatable but like in a different way i think what you kind of bring out is like a different framework 
to using that same framework, which I really, really like, like and appreciate. Um, Thank you. That, that, that's it. our goal. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we're after. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Um, um, my last second last question is: uh, You said something earlier in the show, and I, and I love that. I haven't heard anyone say it, but it kind of articulates or, or summarizes the whole mindfulness aspect because um, you said r ruminating about the past and worrying about the future and there's a slither you know you didn't say this but there's that slither of present you know which is so fleeting do you have any recommendations for keeping people in that that present i mean you mentioned a few you know like techniques like meditation and stuff like that do you have any thoughts around that i thought it's a very cool saying absolutely um i think um i think there's no there's no replacement for a formal practice of meditation. Um, while there are many ways of being mindful, and in fact, the idea is to be mindful in real time, you know, as you're moving and going about your life, I don't think there's a replacement for setting aside the time for cultivating the discipline of meditation. And really the goal here is to, it's to blur the boundary between formal and what we call informal practice. Um, you want to be uh, being able to you want to punctuate your day with moments of clear seeing, moments of presence where you're not worrying about the future, ruminating about the past, or even or judging yourself in the present, but simply observing equanimously in the present. Um, you want to punctuate your day with moments like that as often as possible. And I find that it's very difficult to do that in the absence of a regular disciplined formal practice of meditation. Um, that, that's not to limit it. I mean, there are, there are many forms and applications and ways of meditating. So it should be possible for people to find one that works for them. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. The other thing I would say is I would, I would invite people to consider a practice like yoga to be a form of moving meditation, moving mindfulness, which is more accessible for some people. So you know, sitting on the cushion uh, is not for you, you know, for 20 minutes, then you know, getting on a yoga mat and observing the breath and staying consciously connected to your breath as you're moving through these postures is another wonderful way to cultivate that presence and that mindfulness. Um, then there are more extreme methodologies, uh, not for the faint of heart, but, but if you find that you're brave and you're willing to, to try it, um, deliberate cold exposure is one of the most powerful ways I've ever encountered to, to switch off the thinking mind and to get dr dramatically and vigorously into your body. Um, in fact, in that, in, when you jump into an ice bath, you cannot be thinking about anything else but the sensations in your body. Um, so so that, that's, for the, that's for the brave and the intrepid. Mm -hmm. um, but th those are some of the things that come to mind, and it's about finding something that works for you. And, and once you've cultivated a formal practice, a, a consistent routine with one of these modalities, then you have to constantly invite yourself to, to, um, to see clearly rather than be lost in thought. And it's helpful to use transitional moments throughout the day to do that. Getting up, walking through a doorway, sitting down, um, opening a, a laptop. Now, all these transitional moments can be a cue, a prompt to to send to yourself, to come back to the breath, to notice where your mind is in the future, the past, or hopefully uh, bring you back into the present. Okay. Thanks so much for those actionable stuff. The other one, I mean, I, I, I've listened to lots of podcasts, and the one entrepreneur that I you know, followed, 
Um, that's the first time I heard about the psychedelics. Um, but he mentioned flotation tanks as well. I know it's not mainstream. I, I don't even know where you would go and find one. But have you found that as as that's as a as a thing works? I personally haven't tried a flotation tank yet. I've been I've been dying to. Um, it's very appealing to me. Um, it, it's interesting that you should mention flotation tanks because the man who developed flotation tank tanks was a man named John Lilly, um, and he was an, an a big believer in the use of guided, um, curated ketamine journeys. And in fact, he built the flotation tank uh, based on his inspiration from being in that dissociative space mm. that the ketamine put him in. So it's almost as if he tried to replicate that experience, but in the absence of the, the medicine. So it's interesting you should mention that. And I will certainly try it. Maybe we'll, we'll try it together one day. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the way the way he explained it as well, it's exactly what you said, disassociative, you know, like, it's like, it's like very unnerving, you know, being in that flotation tank, and it's dark and, and stuff like that. So it does something to your to your mind. Um, exactly. But yeah, I love this. Um, my last question, obviously, we, you know, we try our best to prepare for the show and ask the right questions. But is there anything that you thought I should have asked you around ketamine-assisted psychotherapy that I didn't? No, I, I think I think it was a great introduction um, into the space. I think um, if we had more time, we could drill down and get fine-grained into a lot of the details. Um, I suppose if, if I think about it, I might have reflected a little bit more on the integration process, which in some, some senses is the most important piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, just this process of translating the insights you gain from the journey into some kind of meaningful and lasting behavior change and all the methodologies that we use to achieve that, all the, all the traditional therapeutic methodologies that we draw on, um, cognitive behavior therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, um, so, so maybe in a, in a future discussion, we can go a bit deeper into that. Okay. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah. So Brett, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for all of your insights. I mean, I think that was amazing. I think most people would have, like myself, would have to listen to it at least once to, to, to take the appropriate notes, but thanks so much for doing this. It's a great pleasure, Oliver. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.